when you push the pedal on our helicopter, it extends one of those uh, flapper valves into the airstream, and that changes the drag on the rotor, which changes the torque on that particular rotor, so you tend to yaw. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher and just search for Rotary Wing Show. And that way you'll get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. You might be driving in your car on the way to work at the moment or out walking the dog or whatever it is that you do when you listen back to these episodes. And I just want to say thank you for tuning in each week and joining in on this journey as I get to talk to some of these amazing people in our industry and to keep learning more and more each time about this helicopter thing that we've all been bitten by. So whether people are finding the show on Google or it's you guys telling people about it, I'm not too sure, but you know, look at the stats there and, and every time, every week, there's more and more sort of people joining in and going back through the back catalogue. So I'm guessing just after this interview goes live, we'll be ticking over about 10,000 downloads and it's just accelerating all the time from there. So if you have introduced someone to the show, then look, give yourselves a big pat on the back because you've been, you know, really the driving force there. If you do normally listen in on your phone, then from time to time, probably worth just checking out the website at rotarywingshow.com and have a look at some of the photos and videos that are attached to the different interview episodes there. I know there's a bunch of you that will be recovering from Heli Expo right now. Uh, there's still a day to run as I actually record this, but this episode will go out after the expo. And from the, the photos coming through on Facebook and Twitter, it looks like everyone is having just way too much fun. So very jealous and maybe next year I'll be able to join you guys. And definitely someone at Airbus Helicopters has been channeling their inner Steve Jobs for the, the big H160 reveal. So that was a pretty big production. And a couple of news items there I've seen come through. So Bristow's looks like they'll be the launch customer for the 609 uh, tilt rotor. So well done for those guys. And that's probably pretty good news for all the Osprey drivers out there. Uh, and so a couple of other deals for Robinson uh, engines I saw come through. And Air Methods has signed on for, for 200 Bell 407s, which is just a, a number that blows me away. And I'm thinking you must get a pretty good bulk discount when you put an order in for, for 200 machines. At least you'd have to hope so. At my end, I've had an awesome week. So last weekend, it was Clean Up Australia Day here. And we had about 12 of us from Aeropower uh, trekked out into the mangroves near Redcliffe Airfield. And we collected a heap of rubbish that's been washing up there in the mangroves over the last uh, couple of years. So we found tyres, buckets, tables. There was glass bottles, cans, bits of plastic, uh, fiberglass sheeting. Uh, even picked up an electric polisher. You name it, just all kinds of crap just sitting out there in the wetlands. And then once we'd done that, we had a company, MD500, uh, fly some nets out to us, and we loaded everything up in the nets and then long-lined the rubbish back to the airfield. So if you look on the show Facebook page and scroll down a few posts, you'll see a couple of group shots there and our, I guess our haul of rubbish that we brought back. So that was a pretty good day. And a local TV news team was keen to get our video, and we got the word that they'd actually put it on the, the nightly news. Sadly, though, we had to watch through about 30 minutes of the news waiting for our video clip, and we got three seconds of coverage right at the end of the news. Uh, so that part was a bit of a letdown. 
But all in all, really good day and something we'll probably look at doing again uh, next year. All right, so I've been guest backing there for a bit, so I guess I should probably tell you a little bit about today's guest. So Richard Woodward had his start in aviation in 1971 in the Royal Australian Air Force, and he flew Hueys for several years before actually then heading down the, the test pilot track. And we'll find out a bit about that in the interview. And Richard's going to be talking about an Australian company called Coax Helicopters and the, the light sports coaxial rotor machine that they're currently developing. For most of us, this is going to be something really different from your, your current uh, daily uh, helicopter ride and a chance not only to learn about a different rotor system, but also some helic- you know, look at helicopter flying at its absolute simplistic basic level. The Coax team are recently back from Avalon Airshow here in Australia too, uh, where they're drumming up interest in the machine. And the machine sounds like a lot of fun. And you'll hear as we open up the interview that Richard gets to play around at some of the, the extremes of aviation size. Richard Woodward, thanks for joining us. It's going to be pretty rare, I reckon, we're going to have an A380 captain on the uh, Rotary Wing show. So thanks for very much for, for being available. No problem. I'm looking forward to the interview, actually, Michael. Cool. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about the company that you're working with in the in design, which is Coax Helicopters, shortly. But let's dive back into your history because you, you do have a Rotary Wing uh, background and it's going to be pretty different. There's not really too many people who step out of an A380 and then step into a, a one-seat helicopter. So how did you get involved in aviation? Oh, well, I, I, when I was in school, I was keen on aviation since I was about a five-year-old and I managed to get a flying scholarship from the Air Force when I was a student and uh, completed my private license in Tasmania a million years ago and I promptly joined the Air Force as a young 18-year-old and, and my first posting out of pilot's course was straight to helicopters. So there's five squadron. So quick history for folks who don't know the, the Australian background. So there was two squadrons. There was nine squadron and five squadron. Is that right? Yeah, originally there was a five squadron and a nine squadron, and then ultimately there was a combined squadron and a 35 squadron that flew both helicopters and caribous. And we in five squadron sort of the home of the training outfit for the Air Force and, and the Navy. We had the helicopter flying school there, and, and five squadron itself did operational work in the sort of southern half of Australia, and nine squadron did in the northern half, although they were the guys who went to Vietnam. So nine squadron has a more high profile, if you want a better term than that. Yeah, definitely. And I guess yeah, if you look at you know history books and things like that, there the, seems to be the photos that get in. But there's a there's a, a couple of photos I've seen of white Australian Hueys flying in front of the, the pyramids in Egypt. And I know you did the UN deployment, uh, peacekeeping to Sinai. So was that you doing those? Yeah. yeah, I did a peacekeeping deployment in 1977. I was on the second contingent to go to the Sinai and... Uh, and it was quite exciting work because we were patrolling the Sinai Peninsula, right, where there's another Islamic state of students right now. But in those days, it was uh, full of Bedouins. And it had been seen of the major battles between both Egypt and Israel. So there was lots of tank bodies, unexploded bombs, etc., and and two armies looking at each other across a, a narrow gap. And we patrolled that narrow gap to make sure there were no breaches. And was that you? Did you get down to the pyramids? Was that uh, you in one of those photos? Uh, yeah, I think that was us. We we certainly spent a lot of time in the Sinai, but the only time we left either side of the country is normally we had a medical emergency or we, we did some PR-type work. Most of our time was spent flying at a very low altitude in the centre of the Sinai to stay away from you know small arms fire and missile lockup, etc. So we spent all our time flying around about 10 feet. 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. Because it's uh, you know it's definitely part of the uh, Australian Huey history. After that, though, and quickly again, we'll just quickly run through your sort of career to give folks a background of how you get into these one-seat helicopters. But um, you ended back up. You did some SAR work, and then you did the instructors and the Empire Test Pilot course. Yeah, I was uh, posted from when I got back from the SAR. I was posted in charge of search and rescue at the fighter base at Williamtown, and I spent a year there. That was quite an exciting time. We did lots of rescues and uh, lots of medevacs, etc. Because there weren't that many civilian rescue helicopters in those days, and I managed to get the Air Force Cross for my services, search and rescue from there, and then I was posted to instructors, course instructor on fixing aircraft, and whilst I was at the instructors, uh, while I was instructing at number 20S at Western Australia, I got posted to Empire Test Pilot School in the UK, and off I went in 1982 to do the year-long course there, which is arguably the hardest thing I've done in my life. Yeah, most folks I've talked to have done it, so it's, uh, yeah, pretty challenging. Yeah, it was. Uh, I distinctly I remember the figures. I, I flew about 147 hours in a year, which doesn't sound like much, but there was well over 30 types of aircraft, both fast jets, transports and helicopters. And every hour you flew was about 13 hours riding, so you were certainly burning the midnight oil. And that's just the biggest too. Like it's different in the civil industry because if, you know folks are used to jumping from one machine to the next. But in the military, you spend you know you could spend five years flying the, the one helicopter type, and that's it. And then here, folks go head off to test pilots course, and as you said, you know within a, a week or two week period, they're flying all these different types. It's just really foreign for um, for many military pilots. Yeah, it was quite funny. I as I said, I've been two and a half, three years jet instruction, and I got posted to test pilots school. So. The Air Force and its wisdom didn't give me any time on the Iroquois because I had about 3,500 hours on the Iroquois at that stage. So they gave me a Chinook conversion and a Jet Ranger Kiowa conversion. They sent me off. So when I turned up at the school, the chief of the school said, are you sure you're supposed to be on the fixed wing on the rotary wing course? I said, oh, I'll rotary wing. And he said, when's the last time you flew a helicopter operation? I said, oh, three, four years ago. But I told him it was like riding a bike and you don't forget. So in we went and uh, it turned out okay. Uh, so. You know, it was a pleasure to fly both both fixed wing and rotary wing on the course, and certainly, you know, when you walk out to do an avoid curve assessment near the end of the year, you know, you're why they make people test spots because if I ever thought I was going to crash a helicopter, it was going to be that day. Fair enough. And then, yeah, back to Australia. Well, I think it was back to Australia. I don't know, but you did a heap of the early uh, night vision uh, research, and there's some work you did in PNG. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I finished test pilot school, so I was fortunate enough to come top of it. I think I was the first or second helicopter pilot in history to come back. So from that, so I, I came back to uh, the research unit, aircraft research and development unit at Arju in uh, South Australia, and almost straight away I was into the thick of things. Because of my background as a flying instructor, they sent me to the Army Helicopter School to do Army Helicopter Course and, and Army Instructors Rating, so I came back as both fixed and rotary wing instructor. So I was doing standardisation flying for for the test pilots, both fixed and rotary wing. And then from there, I got thrown into a bunch of tests. As you mentioned, um, I got to go to New Guinea to uh, do some fixed wing test flying. And then I went back again to do some rotary wing test flying, high altitude uh, hover and uh, performance testing on the side of Mount Gillaway. Anyone who's been in New Guinea will know how that is, but we were hovering at 10,000 feet, both in ground effect and out of ground effect, and seeing what the aircraft would do, carrying bags of lead shot, which made it fairly exciting at times, especially when, you know, at one stage there we were hovering and the aircraft just landed itself and we couldn't stop it, and another time it just took off in a in a spiral at 11,000 feet, and we had no idea why, because I was on full power and 
in the hover, so for it to launch itself into space was quite funny. We did, as you said, night vision goggle research. We uh, It was very early days. We had a requirement from the Department of Defence to provide night interdiction capabilities. We had to generate that in a, in a hurry. So we were doing things like flying around with a big lump of masking tape and literally taping over the warning lights until they didn't blank out the goggles. These were early generation goggles. They were very, very basic. It was like having a pair of binoculars strapped to your head. And uh, after you'd used them for a while, when you came home, you, you always can see it was pink for a couple of hours after you uh, finished because of the, you know, the strong green light from the goggles. And, and the field of view was very restricted. It was about 40 degrees maximum. So you imagine trying to hover a helicopter with no lights on with a pair of binoculars strapped ahead and you can only see straight ahead. Uh, that was exciting. And from there, we developed uh, voltage reduction systems, et cetera, too, and filters for the lighting to reduce the lighting levels to a level acceptable for goggles. And sort of simultaneously from that, uh, the goggle capacity and capability improved with the next generation of goggles. And eventually, you wear lightweight like, uh, goggles on your helmet and look straight under them at the instruments with the very low light systems that we'd set up. That made it a whole bunch safer than those early days. Yeah, I can imagine the um, yeah, the, the first first couple of goes would be uh, yeah very difficult on on the early goggles. Oh, absolutely. The the you know there's no depth perception with early goggles, so you could be hovering alongside a tree and it looked like a shrub, or you'd think it was a shrub and, and it was a tree. So you know we had to give things wide berth, but we're doing what's called nap of the earth flying. So we're flying around below treetop level, hopping fences and things at slow speed and. Um, we very quickly learned that there were some serious depth recession issues with the, the first generation goggles. And so we initially flew with one pilot as a safety pilot with no goggles on, but all he got was startled quite regularly when something appeared out of the blackness and it was a tree we went whizzing by. So they were very difficult early days and quite a strong learning curve uh, for all of us. And I was fortunate when I got posted to my ground job in operational requirements for helicopters that. I managed to sort of oversee from that position the implementation operationally of the goggle system. Is that still on Huey's at that stage, or what, what airframe were you using? Yeah, I was. We started our work on the on the Kiowa because we had one at Arju and it was convenient. And then we moved to the Huey. And when the Blackhawk turned up, I was fortunate, as I said, I was an OR uh, helicopter at the time, and I managed to ride into the standard what we wanted for the the Blackhawk. So the Blackhawk was a quantum leap on those early attempts. Can you talk about the introduction? What, what do you sort of remember from the Blackhawk introduction? Oh, well, I didn't fly the Blackhawk. It's one of those unique things because of my position and, and the staff job. I got to do the original meetings and critical design reviews for the helicopter. So you could argue, argue I was responsible for the paint scheme and, and the HF inside and all sorts of weird things that we had to fight over with various divisions of defence to see which was you know, acceptable for operations and also configuration. The problem we have in Australia is we always want our aircraft to do 37 things. We can't afford to buy individual rescue helicopters and individual battlefield helicopters. So we, we end up with sort of a, a jack-of-all-trades helicopter and that tends to make them unique and it also adds to their weight as you add capability to the helicopter. You know, we had a very sophisticated floor on the on the black op of all things. We had to cater for armour plating, we had to cater for a different type of crew seats to carry our soldiers because, you know, SAS soldiers, when they're carrying a full load of deer, are very heavy people. Um, so 
And we also had to have an air rescue, search and rescue capability. So we sort of put the bigger transmission and, and the different flight control system in from the Army Black Hawk that they had in the United States, which caused its own problem. Okay, yeah, I didn't know about the transmission. Uh, you know, definitely avionics and there's enough extra boxes and things hanging off it. But um, no, I thought the rest of it was fairly standard. No, we had to operate the power. We had some concerns about the aircraft's capability to hover at high altitudes and and hot temperatures, which is going to restrain air air operations in the north. So we up we got the higher performance engines. Uh, basically, we ended up with sort of a Seahawk kit in in the Blackhawk. It worked quite well. As I said, I never got to fly the aircraft. I, I went from my ground job to uh, leaving leaving the air force, so I never got to fly the aircraft. Okay, and then yeah, so all right, let's jump down. Like, how'd you get into A three eighties? And like, it just seems to be a uh, you know quite a different career change. I know you're doing the fixed wing oh, the test flight, well, but well, I was I applied for and was given the job as the CASA test pilot in those days, and I had to think about it and thought, well, I, I want to keep flying later on my career, and I applied for and got a job with Qantas as a second officer. So I sort of started on the with Qantas as being a second officer on uh, the classic 747. Um, did that for a couple of years, and then I moved to the 767 for quite a few years, about another seven and a half as a first officer, and then I got about 18 months on the 747-400 as a first officer, and from there I went back to be a captain on the 767, and I sort of worked my way up through the fleet, so I went from the 767 to the A330 Airbus as a captain for about four years, and then I got asked by a company, a group was got asked to go across the 380 because CASA insisted that we have Airbus qualified people flying the 380 for the first couple. So I was very fortunate to get onto the 380 right from the beginning. In fact, I did my conversion flying in France, so that was gangs of fun, I must say. Yeah, I know a few of the guys have done the uh, Tiger conversions and things like that, and uh, yeah, all of them enjoy their time in France. Yeah, it's a great aeroplane. It's a unique aeroplane, and flying it around France for the manufacturer's pilots was really good fun because we had... Yeah, with my background as a test pilot, I, I knew some people over there, some friends, and uh, it's unique for line airline pilots to have a flight test engineer sitting in the uh, centre seat managing prototype model serial number one, which is the one you're flying as a conversion aeroplane. So, you know, because it's a prototype, it had some unique systems, and therefore there was the odd interesting failure or computer reset that we would never normally see in line operation. So... That was good, plus whizzing around France and literally landing every 15 minutes uh, to get our landings up was was very exciting. Richard, is there, I don't know, did you notice any advantage from helicopter pilots going into jumbos? Is there any, like, you know, they seem very different, but is there any carryover that would give people an advantage of being a, a previously a helicopter pilot? It's a perennial argument. Most of genuine fixed-wing pilots don't understand us helicopter pilots. Uh, they think we're weird and they think that um, helicopters are just thrashing air in submission and tend to crash and go abandoned. So they have a very strong view about helicopters where helicopter pilots tend to be more sanguine about life. And and uh, I've found with all those types I've flown that helicopters are a very sensitive device. You know, the only other device that you sort of fly with that sensitivity is a fighter-type aircraft. And most people won't believe that, but helicopters have got to be flown very gently and very smoothly most of the time and uh, with small and precise movements. And most fast jets are like that because it's roll capability and uh, you know, the performance capability such you have to sometimes be aggressive, but most of the time you're being very smooth on the controls. So helicopter pilots here with fighter pilots are sensitivity for the controls. And when you get into a big airliner, 
arguably the world's biggest transport aeroplane, like a 380. Funnily enough, it's flown by a fly-by-wire system, so you can tend to over-control the fly-by-wire aircraft, and, and they're quite sensitive and you know, they're best left alone at times because they have attitude stabilisation and wings levelling devices and things. So if you've flown helicopters, you do tend to find that you find yourself flying fly-by-wire aircraft as sort of a natural consequence. Okay. Well, Richard, let's go from, you know, one of the world's biggest aircraft to probably one of the smallest bits of mechanical stuff you can use to get airborne. Can you tell us a bit about, mm-hmm. the, uh, yeah, where, where you are now and about the, the machine and then I guess we dive into a bit of the history of it? Yeah, it's a very interesting history. Our coax helicopter, we've got two types. We've got a 17-foot diameter rotor and a 20-foot diameter rotor. And, and we bought those design rights from a company that, that had gone bankrupt in the States and no fault of their own. They're very technically capable people, but the contracts sort of dried up. The 17-foot aircraft had an interesting genesis. It was uh, arose as a requirement from the early century series fighters, post-Korea, etc., where USAF and the Navy had the idea that maybe pilots could rescue themselves. So the helicopter was designed to fold up into a container and if a pilot was down, the fighter pilot was down, then a transport would roar overhead. This thing would fall out on the back of a parachute and land and the fighter pilot would literally unfold it and then stick a bolt in the centre bit to make it all stay together and then pull up the pull start and start the engine and then theoretically he could rescue himself by flying away. There was a bit of a small problem they found that most fighter pilots couldn't fly helicopters. So um, it sort of died a bit of a natural death. And then from there, they built a bigger model, the 20-foot model, and that was arguably the first light observation helicopter ever. They were, it was part of a requirement for marine squads to be able to pop up above the trees and have a look at the battlefield. They built a few of those, and then they went on to build a bigger naval version that carried... Um, torpedoes and was used as a drone off the back of uh, World War II class destroyers, hundreds and hundreds of them in fact, and they're still being used at White Sands as missile towing devices, in uh, target towing devices in uh, the year 2000. So we thought that design uh, could be brought into the 21st century, so we bought the rights to it and some of the machines, we've got about seven of the original helicopters, uh, and we're developing it into a 21st century product that's sort of it in a nutshell. Oh, can you just describe it visually? So we're talking, you know, so coaxial uh, rotors. So generally, I guess people would think about, um, you know, a K-Max is like intermeshing and you sort of have your Russian designs, but can you just, I guess, describe the, the, the concept and what it looks like for someone who's listening? Sure. Um, our helicopter looks a lot like a gyrocopter. In fact, people arguably mistake it for a gyrocopter when they first see it. So it looks like a bit of a flying Meccano sand in the sense it's uh, it's very simple. It's all tubes and it's got uh, no tail rotor, which is the standout feature. That's why people think it's a, uh, a gyrocopter. But it's got two coaxially mounted rotors turning in opposite directions. Naturally, as a result, our shaft, uh, main shaft, is quite complex uh, from the transmission. You've got essentially, in our case, three shafts, a centre one turning the generator drive, etc. Then there's an internal mast that's turning one rotor and then uh, the external mast is turning the other rotor and they go in opposite directions. So if you've set it up properly, then the net torque effect is zero. One of the bones of the helicopter pilot's life, as we know, is every time you move one control, you're going to move the other two in essence. And so we set the thing up so that you could pull the aircraft up into the hover and with little or no pedal movement, in fact, you can sit there with your feet off the pedals completely and the thing is torque balanced. So they have a unique advantage in that 
that the um, the rotors cancel each other out. And there are some advantages and there are some disadvantages with the design, of course. All right, and I guess if folks are thinking of the new Sikorsky Radar, it would probably be the most modern um, version that if people are thinking about other machines that sort of would be the same sort of coax design. Yes. One of the, limit, one of the limitations of coaxial helicopters is uh, one blade flying up and one blade flying down is because they're going in opposite directions, so they're getting different lift levels, and that balances out across the rotor system because you've got two of them, and... Um, yeah, and the net effect of having a coaxial rotor is you, the in-train flow from the top rotor is generating an equivalent rotor diameter effect of about 1.4 times the rotor size. So it's a very efficient system, but because of the rotors closing on each other, as the forward speed increases, the rotor tips get closer and closer, so that tends to limit the forward speed. So what you see on things like the car mob, the big gunships, etc., there's meters between the two rotors for that very reason. All right, so let's go through, I guess, some of those benefits and, and disadvantages. So, just you mentioned it there about the, you know, the downflow from the from the top rotor. Does that then increase your inflow angle on the bottom one? And like, is that a, a loss of performance there? Like, how do you sort of trade off that? No, uh, you wouldn't think so on initial inspection. But what it does do is it straightens up the airflow. The, the top rotor pulls in the air and it straightens up the airflow into the other rotor. And you could argue that you have a different uh, angle of attack on the lower rotor, which you do. Uh, but the net effect is positive in all, in all circumstances. It, it, NASA did a paper on it in the 60s, and um, they tried to explain it. And uh, like all complex rotor aerodynamics, it, the mathematics is a bit eye-watering, but basically uh, you get in-train flow into the, into the rotor. Uh, you still get translational lift effects, so when you move forward in translational, the, the rotor it draws inflow into both rotors, and there's quite a significant improvement in lift. So it behaves like a normal rotor system. Uh, it just uh, is effectively a smaller than you would have on a single rotor system. That's where the 1.4 multiplier comes from. So our 17-foot rotor is equivalent to a 24-foot rotor. Okay, so, uh, so it's more compact. So basically yeah. you have a smaller smaller diameter than you would need in, in a single. Yeah, you still get high angles of attack at the tips, etc. You know, we're running our rotor at about 630 RPM. It's quite fast. But the tip speed is relatively slow, so we don't get serious compressibility effects inside the normal envelope. You won't see it. Uh, interestingly, for most people, they don't. They want probably wondering how we generate your control. I said that both rotors are uh, torque balanced. So what we've got, if you look very closely at our helicopter, we've got a little flapper valve on the end of each rotor tip. So there's four flapper valves, and when you push the pedal on our helicopter, it extends one of those flapper valves into the airstream, and that changes the drag on the rotor, which changes the torque on that particular rotor. So you tend to yaw, and so the, the flapper valves just generate the yaw effect on the rotors, and it's quite effective. Uh, we can generate high rates of turn. I think if you look at our website, you'll see that the pilot flying the aircraft there is whizzing around and flying backwards and sideways at whatever speed he wants. We sort of because it's coaxial, in, in essence, the limiting speed backwards and forwards and sideways is the same. It's not quite true because we have a tail plane to provide directional stability and a bit of pitch stability at forward speed. So the sideways speed limits are well over 30 knots in both directions, but the backward speed is arguably more than that, but we, we restrict it for normal pilots. And those uh, sort of drag uh, flapper or, or flaps on the end of the, the blade tips, is that the same thing that the Russians use for their coax, or do they have a different um, a different setup for, for, for torque? They don't use, tend to use tip brakes like we use. Um, there's been not, numerous attempts over the years to control rows like ours. There's 
you know, it's not uncommon to try and use it by differential collective on the two rotors. In fact, some of the amateur designs have one rotor that doesn't has doesn't have full range of control movements and cyclically and collectively. And so it's just a lift rotor, and they're trying to manage it with the other rotor. That that's inefficient. So um, some people use big paddles in the airstream. You'll see that there's some amateur helicopters with what looks like a giant rudder under the rotor. That's very inefficient at low speeds, naturally. So we think the tip brake system works quite well. Yeah, and I think that was, and again, doing the research for this interview, that was like one of the breakthroughs that uh, that original company had in the 1950s or so, was that uh, the tip brake design. So, yeah. And the other side, I saw another figure that you get like almost you know, 20% of your power lost on a normal helicopter in the, in the tar rotor. So I'm guessing again, you know, all the power from the engine uh, goes straight into the uh, into the main rotors. Yeah, absolutely. Depending on the the, the tar rotor configuration, which way it turns, and and the gearbox sector, typical tar rotor power loss is between say nine and 17% roughly. You know, they've improved over the years, but they're still sniffing at loss through the drivetrain and the gearboxes, and we don't suffer that because we don't push another Toyota gearbox. So all the power we're producing goes into the um, into the rotor system, and so the lift capability of the, of the rotor system is quite a lot more than a helicopter of equivalent size, both because of the equivalent rotor effect and also you're using more power directly to the rotor system. Our little helicopter has got a... Um, We've had to put in a, a pusher device on the collective, so when the pilot gets to the transmission limit power, the two-minute rating, the thing pushes back against him. Now he can pull the full power, but we've put that in there to make sure that because the thing is getting a huge amount of power straight to the transmission, we've had to make sure we take care of the longevity of the transmission. We uh, will we'll look at that in the fully operational aircraft, the you know the commercial product. Uh, we like the concept, so we we'll probably keep it. Okay, and I guess at this stage too, you're in the um, proving ground, so it's a one-seat machine and it's going to scale up. But uh, imagine that the other big thing is safety uh, would be, you know, for ground ops and just getting rid of that tail rotor, uh, you know, one, you know, bumping it into things, but also that's not a, you know, not a ground risk for folks. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's many, many accidents where people have walked into tail rotors. I remember when I was flying search and rescue, I, we landed uh, on one of those rescues and people were very excited to see a helicopter and they're all wandering around it and a gentleman ducked under the tail rotor and didn't realise he'd come within about three inches of killing himself. So um, I, that scared me because I was in the front of the helicopter looking forward and the crewman saw him. So the advantage of no tail rotor is significant in those cases. Plus, you know, we're sort of going to pitch our 20-foot design helicopter. It's a much more weight capability in our little sports model, the Saladin will We'll pitch that at uh, cattle mastering helicopter. I'm going to put some rollover protection tubes in and around the pilot. But the, the, you know, when the guy's whizzing around the trees chasing a cow, at least won't stick the tail rotor in the tree and suffer a tail rotor failure as a direct consequence. How's the noise compare? You know, is there any different sort of noise profile on the uh, coax? It's reasonably quiet helicopter. Most of the noise at the moment is from the gas turbine. We've got a little gas turbine on the prototype which is a gorgeous little thing, uh, but it burns about a litre a minute. Um, so we're not going to go with that in production. We're actually going to, uh, we've got an engine from Germany from Hearth Engines, and that's going to be, it's a two-stroke fuel-injected oil-injected two-stroke with electric and manual start. I, I like the design. It's unique in, in terms of its compactness and its performance and also its... Um, modular design so um, we went for a liquid cooled earth to cater for cooling problems and that'll be a lot quieter than a gas turbine so 
with no toll rotor turning at high RPM, there's no high toll rotor noise you hear from a lot of aircraft. So the helicopter's very quiet in that sense. What are some of the disadvantages? Like, as you scale us up, is there a different CAG considerations? Like, is it um, like a, a smaller or a larger envelope or same sort of considerations? Well, you've picked it in one there, Michael. The, the CAG envelope is a bit of an issue because everything's hanging off the mast and with no weight from the tail rotor assembly down the back end, the CAG can march forward with um, with heavy pilots and, of course, that directly affects control power. The you know, CAG position makes the cycle go after the CAG goes forward. So what we've done with our little aircraft, we're only going to make that a single-seater one. The 20-footer, we may make a two-seater. We will tail it to the individual pilot, but I'm using the oil tank for the engine for both the gas turbine and for the, the piston as a CG management device. And unfortunately for the for the uh, piston, we've also got a, a liquid cooling radiator. It's not that big, but it all helps. So we'll be mounting them down the back of the aircraft to manage CG. Uh, we may extend the tail boom slightly too on the production model compared to the prototype to give us more capability. Um, the little aircraft only weighs about 320 kilos all up, so we've, we've got to be careful about um, managing the weight and make sure the performance is still wonderful. It is very good, by the way, the performance, but um, we'll have more capability in the 20-footer to play with that. Um, so when a pilot turns up to buy our aircraft, we'll actually sit him in it and we'll set the weight and we'll make the uh, CG manageable by putting the radiator and the oil tank in a certain position. We'll have a range of movements, not as if that particular pilot, if they're sharing with another one that was moved to the next position, it's not a matter of undoing a couple of bolts and repositioning the oil tank and then you can go. So in the production plan, what size are you going to scale up to? So you've got the, the single and the two-seat, but is this something that you would go to you know, utility-size helicopters or is it still a fairly niche market? Well, we're trying to pick a market between uh, we're going to build an unmanned version of the 20-footer. That's on the on the plan. So we're going to provide a, maybe a 300-kilo uh, lift capability with that. Uh, we're going to stay out of the little quadrotor market, and we're going to try and stay out of the, the, the big helicopter market. But we've got a 24-foot design rotor, and as I said, when you look at the equivalent rotor effects, that aircraft will lift uh, a metric tonne. So uh, we can make a four-seater out of that, and we can also make an unmanned aircraft. As I said, that design was originally a naval drone anyway. Um, we can make that into an unmanned aircraft that lifts nearly a tonne in its own right. Um, with the improvements in um, transmission design and uh, the fuel uh, management, we can actually make that very efficient. So we sort of... Uh, in the in the short term, we'll have the single seat sports helicopter. We'll probably have the um, utility type helicopter. The twenty footer we'll make into utility single seater and and possibly a two seater training helicopter or two seater recreational helicopter. And the twenty four footer we can definitely make two seater or four seater and and corral. And a, as a parallel development, we'll do a twenty foot unmanned and and possibly almost certainly in the long term a twenty four foot unmanned. Okay, sure. Again, look, it blows me away. Like the fact that you know, forty years ago, this thing was flying as a drone off the back of navy ships, the same design, and we're kind of back there now. You know, with unmanned aircraft and things like that. But it's kind of like thinking about the you know the space shuttle, all that stuff that happened back then. But yeah, like these you know unmanned aircraft have been around for ages. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, you know, you could argue we're taking a quantum leap backwards to use an old design, but in reality. 
the design was really leading edge for its time, and uh, there's no reason why it still isn't leading edge in the sense of the control of the aircraft is is wonderful and. Um, as I said, it's highly agile for its size, but it's also quite efficient with no tow rotor. All we need to do is move it into the 21st century and, and you know, with modern engines and um, reduced fuel burn and modern materials, uh, the lift capabilities is amazing for the size of the rotor system. So uh, we looked at the, the drone system and the, you may appreciate those days they were flying it with a visual link and a television camera from the ship. So... It must have been very, very difficult for the pilot off the back of a moving destroyer in a, in a big sea to fly a helicopter that was sort of five or seven miles away using a television camera and a, and a link, uh, an analogue link at that. So um, they were difficult days, <laughs> but clearly worked because they were still using them in the year 2000. Excellent. Oh, okay, well, can we talk about the, the flying side? So, you know, what's it like to sit in the seat and, and actually fly the thing compared to, uh, you know, other helicopters? From the pilot point of view, well, as I said, it, it, it's quite agile and, and it's quite unique in the sense that when you get comfortable with the idea, you don't actually have to move the pedals at all. The sort of footrest, you can, but the thing's top balance, so you can whiz around um, flying just the cyclic and the collective, and it's highly manoeuvrable for its size. So it's a bit of a thrill to fly the small one, and uh, it's quite agile. Um, and there's quite a tendency to sort of whiz sideways and backwards at the limiting speed in a blink. Um, it's, it's handling characteristics in the cruise uh, are fine. It's, it's not that fast to helicopter in that sense. We're, we've limited the prototype at the moment to about 67 knots while we explore the fly envelope a bit. Uh, the 20-footer the will go a bit faster, and we've also um, looked at, uh, we've got a transmission that's got a greater gap between the rotors. I mentioned that earlier, so that'll give us a much higher forward speed. Uh, but all these things take developmental time, of course. But it, 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 in a nutshell, it's infinitely easier to fly than a normal helicopter because you don't have to move the tail rotor pedals every time you move the collective. How's the licensing go? Like, I'm not sure what sort of license you're you working on at the moment or what sort of category it'll fall into. But um, if someone did training on a coax helicopter... Would they get a a license that allows them to fly, you know, another machine, or is it just a like a, a type transition type thing? How's it for well, the licensing? That's a good question. At the moment, being we've only got a single seat design, people have to turn up with a helicopter license in essence to fly the thing. Um, the seventeen foot is going to be experimental category. Uh, it's many, many millions of dollars to certify it to um, to comply with the FAR twenty seven. And we probably won't do that for the 17-footer. It's just not worth it because that price would have to be amortised across the cost of the machines, and we'll, and then they'll become super expensive. We're trying to keep the price at uh, at a range that an amateur pilot would love to have as a, a a toy or share a toy with some friends in a shed, you know. Um, so at the moment, helicopter license because of the fact that we can't provide any sort of two-seat training. Um, what we're going to do is insist that people with a uh, you know, fly another type, and we'll get them. We've got a bit of a plan for sort of taxing and and um, and sort of uh, low hover testing and things till they feel comfortable. But we're we're reasonably comfortable that it's relatively easy to fly, and the average pilot will find no trouble flying at all. We do have a skidded design and a wheel design. The 17 footer will be wheel design, so they can push it in and out of their hangar. The 
skidded design will be on the 20-footer, uh, one of the 20-footed variants, the one that we're going to make unmanned and also if people want it. So you can put payloads under the uh, under the aircraft, uh, you know, to hook up in between the skid. Uh, they will arguably be fractionally harder to land, but the aircraft is very easy to land in anyway because it's uh, symmetrical ground effect. It's 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 sort of almost hands off in the hover. Um, so those issues we have to work through the the training and development and certification issues uh, at the moment. As I said, it's really really expensive and quite a lengthy process to certify. The one thing I will say is because of its background. Every single piece of the helicopter is mill specification. So I was delighted when I saw that when I first got into this uh, business. And we pulled one apart and we sat on the hangar floor and com- completely pulled one of the original aircraft apart and checked every part against all the drawings. And and every single part was mill spec. So uh, we're confident that, that our design will be fairly robust, even if it isn't certified. Okay, and you, you just glossed over something there. I was going to bring you back to. You said it's almost hands off in the hover. Like, where's that stability come from? Because you know, as a helicopter pilot, you take your hands off, and unless it's a modern machine with some kind of automation, the thing's just going to fall over. So, what's the yeah. what's the design yeah, I, consideration I, there, or, or like, how, how does that mean, work? I don't. <laughs> I don't mean literally let go of it. I mean that uh, what I meant there by that comment is that it is very low control activity. We've uh, you know, as I said, you're not moving the pedals with the collective. Once the thing's stabilised in the hover, the, the, the pedal's not moving at all and you might be able to move the collective a tiny bit because of so gas. And the only need to move the um, the cyclic is the odd uh, inflow gas. Because the rotors are generating uh, symmetrical lift, uh, there's no... The aircraft's response to gas is just to basically climb or, or move slightly as a, a typical of a helicopter. But because... Uh, the roads are generating symmetrical well, lift. You don't have a real problem in the hover with control activity. The only thing that may cause uh, activity is uh, the CG slightly forward at the moment because of our test, you know, the way we set up the test vehicle, but we're fixing that. So you get a gas, you tend to have to compensate a little bit for and after the things moving around. But as I said, it's definitely easier than a normal helicopter. So I guess by hands off, I meant that you're not constantly moving the controls as much as you would in a normal helicopter. No, that's right. I was just wondering, yeah, whether it's the removal of all those sort of other coupling forces, or whether there was some sort of inherent uh, stability in the in the two rotor design. So, yeah, okay, cool, that makes sense. Oh, there is. There's inherent uh, stability due to inflow effects because one rotor is going to react differently than the other rotor, so they tend to net cancel. But like all helicopters, they're pitch unstable at, at forward speed, at high speed. So you know. Uh, it, uh, Aircraft will do what a normal aircraft does. You're running out of forward cycling. You should move into the uh, forward envelope, and and if you if you were brave enough to pull the stick back an inch or so at a high speed, the thing would pitch up at a, a very high rate. It's a typical helicopter in that sense. With the two rows and just aerodynamics point of view, auto rotations and things like vortex ring, is there anything different in a coax design? No, the uh, the helicopter auto rotates quite well. With the 17 foot rotors are reasonably low energy because they're light. Weight and so we're looking at maybe increasing the tip weight of the helicopter to improve the energy of the rotor. But it comes down uh, depending on your weight at a fairly typical helicopter speed, maybe 1400 feet a minute, maybe 1600 feet in the worst case. Um, but it, it flies well in the auto. Um, the tip brakes are not quite as effective in auto rotation because the torque's fairly reduced on the rotor system, but they still work. So directional control is not a problem. Um, Cyclic and, and collective control 
are still the same as a normal helicopter in auto rotation, so we don't find any trouble doing auto rotations or anything. Um, as I said, we will look at that. We've got a whole bunch of rotor blades uh, for the 20 footer. We've got uh, quite high lift blades compared to the, the 17 footer. We're trying to keep the 17 footer as a sports helicopter to, to, as I said, to keep the mark, make the market, and not you don't end up paying $300,000 for a little yeah. helicopter we're trying to get. So we're trying to keep the thing uh, at a market price and, and a performance level that's acceptable to most uh, amateur parts. The 20-footer will very much be the commercial product in the sense that we can, as I said, put much bigger blades on much higher lift capability. Naturally, all these things are limited by the amount of power you put through the transmission and the type of engine. And on that, I guess someone's looking at it as a sort of private machine and, and a low-cost option. What sort of maintenance overhead is there on the servicing and, and the care of it? Ah, that's a good question. What we're doing there is uh, we're fitting a, a helicopter monitoring system to each of the aircraft. We, we've talked to a, a electronic box manufacturer, and because we, uh, the, you can look at the prototype at the air show next week, but it's got a Garmin G3X on it, and so we're going to pick up a lot of data through the aircraft anyway, so we've decided to transmit that through the 3G phone network back to us and uh, we'll be able to tell you if you've over-talked the transmission or if you need servicing. The uh, So we'll be able to monitor it for people. Uh, because of the experimental nature, either the, the pilot has to build his helicopter himself to the tune of about 51% or we can build it for them and maintain it for them. So we're going to sort of set up a system uh, in our facility up here and just north of Sydney where you could keep it with us and we'll maintain it for you. But we think the maintenance levels will be quite low. The history of the helicopter is that it's pretty good that way. Um, the little helicopter will have a 500-hour major service where we'll overhaul the engine and uh, check all the rotating componentry. The 20-footer one will go for 1,500-hour uh, major overhaul. Um, the uh, normal maintenance will be just um, looking and maintaining the oils for the two-stroke and... Uh, all the normal telltales for um, pre-flighting a helicopter. But as I said, because of our hum system, we should be able to monitor the aircraft any time you go through a, near a phone tower. It'll tell us if, uh, whether it needs maintenance or not. Yeah, that's, that sounds like pretty unique. I haven't heard of anything like that back to sort of manufacturer data, especially when you're talking such a small machine. So that sounds fairly, um, you know, I don't know, groundbreaking, but fairly, fairly unique at least. Well, you know, we we looked at what the sort of people are going to use the helicopter and, you know, there'll be folks out there that'll buy it and fly it once a month and there may be a two or three people buy it as a consortium, they might fly it a bit more than that. So, uh, you know, things just sitting in a shed, they tend to deteriorate a little bit, as we all know. So we would like to make sure that our the people that buy a helicopter have got manufacturer support. We've... We've we've always intended from the very beginning that we actually take care of the helicopter for the people, especially if we move down the experimental category. So very early on, we chose to move with a hums kit uh, on the aircraft. Uh, I mean, it adds minimal weight. The sensors are already there and the engines and and everything's FADAC control these days. So we can pick up a bunch of data. All we had to figure out was a way to transmit it to, to back to us and... And we found a manufacturer that built a box that we could do that with. Um, and so it was, it was a natural consequence of our sort of design philosophy that we could uh, monitor the aircraft for people. And um, we can even send them a message saying, look, your chopper's due for servicing. 
All right. When you're back on the line, because you're still obviously flying uh, around the world in the in the 380s, what what are you? What's the other crew and the other captains and the and your other flight crew think when you're showing pictures and, and tell them about this thing? Oh well, like all pilots are quite excited. I have a vision of the uh, the there's a film on our website of the thing whizzing around through the trees, but. I had the original hover testing of the new prototype because we, we've moved into prototyping stage and I show the guys that and they're all quite excited about uh, the size of it and the uniqueness of it. Some of them being pure fixed twin pilots, a bit of alarm, but other guys go, how much does it cost? When can I get one? Yep. Um, so uh, they, 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 they're a little bit jealous in some ways that a 380 captain can go and fly a little single-seat helicopter. I was going to say, you probably started up and actually hover inside the 380. I haven't been in one yet, but my guess is there'd be plenty of spaces big enough. Yeah, you could probably, the, the aircraft's 80 metres long nearly, it's 73 metres long, so you could um, yeah, you could almost fly up and down the inside of the aircraft. Uh, but, you know, it's I'm not alone there. We have friend, guys who fly the you know, fly baby aircraft, etc. so they're climbing out of the world's biggest jet into some little... Uh, flying toy in essence, but the pilots are pilots, you know, we're still, even though we've been flying airliners, I think this is, I've been flying since 1971, I still get excited by aviation on a daily basis, but no, I won't, I'll give it up, but at the moment, I just really enjoy every moment. You want to just quickly talk about the team there, so I guess we haven't talked about, um, you know, the the backing that goes into this, we've talked about the design and that, but uh, if you just want to we finish on, I guess, give folks an idea of, you know, how much work and how much planning and investment and, and background is actually going into this, uh, so they've got an idea of the, the scope. Oh, yeah, the, we started life as very much as a volunteer organisation, uh, you know, so We've employed a few people since, but it's a huge amount of effort when it seems like a great idea to take a proven design and then just, we'll make it and sell it, but it doesn't work that way. We we had to take all those paper drawings and convert them into a 3D design. And so we've got a design system called SolidWorks. So we've converted all those parts into 3D. We have a 3D engineer who's working closely with me to you know modify the prototype, but it's really exciting that you can actually do a three-dimensional drawing uh, modification and you can turn the, the rotating componentry of the aircraft on the design and have a look at it and see if it, it suits you and works and you can do some basic computational analysis you can do CG analysis you can do all sorts of things with it so that was wonderful but that was a lot of work I mentioned earlier we literally sat on the floor of the hangar and pulled the aircraft to bits piece by piece and took photos of it and uh, we, we very early on decided that everything we do will be through a centralised design process and we have a an add-on to that 3D publisher that we can we can generate manuals, we can generate maintenance manuals, we can generate how to build manuals with drawings and photos so if one of the uh, owners of the aircraft wants to pull his aircraft to bits and uh, repair it and build it himself we can, under our supervision the manual allow that. But that was a monumental amount of work. Um, I've had to read every bit of flight test data that the original company generated and, and it was all done with slide rules uh, they were, and handwritten in pencil. It, it's just unique to go through that. Uh, we've employed a, a couple of engineers to help with the modification design and interpreting that material. And we, we have... Um, Lamy's licensed engineers to work on the aircraft. We're sort of at that stage as a company where we really need to get some more investment and some people interested in buying the helicopter before we actually grow to the size where we can relieve the, the central group of people the amount of work because it's just eye-watering. All right, where can folks go find out some more information, Richard? 
Uh, well, our website, WorldwideWebCarMaxHelicopters.com, uh, will uh, give people a, an insight into what we're doing. And if they're uh, around, I don't know when this program's going to air, I think it's about a week away, but if they see us at the Avalon Air Show, come up and say hello because we'll have the prototype down there and, and we'll have the new engine. I'm going to be very careful and make sure it doesn't get a lot of dust on us because it's brand new, but there'll be a group of us down there talking about it. And, but the main thing is look at the website, have a look at the vision, have a look at the, some of the 3D drawings we've got on there and if you're interested, give us a call or send us an email. Fantastic. Well, good luck at uh, Avalon. And uh, yeah, I'll be keeping an eye on it and see how you guys are getting on. Thanks, Michael. It was good to talk to you. Thanks, Richard. Cheers. That was Richard Woodward from Coax Helicopters. As Richard was indicating there, that they're super keen to get interested people through on both the investment and the, the buy size, if that sounds like a, a good match for you. In fact, it takes a bit of time and money to crack out these interviews and keep the website updated and uh, have the downloads um, sort of and the bandwidth covered. So again, a plug for the episode sponsors that make this all possible. So trainmorepilots.com is the place to go if you want to get help attracting more students for your aviation courses. And at the trainmorepilots.com website, you'll be able to download resources there to improve your online marketing for your school or your training organization. I want to give a, a shout out and a plug also to the American Helicopter Museum in Pennsylvania, uh, USA, and the Helicopter Museum in England uh, for both those organisations. And definitely, you know, check out the website for these guys. So both museums not only have a you know amazing collection, but they've also just been recent signups uh, to hold an open day for World Helicopter Day in August this year. So if you're keen to get people to look around your company or your organisation through an open day then you can get all the details over at worldhelicopterday.com. And if you submit your open day details there on the site, then you can actually have those open day details and your photos and information listed there on the international site as a bit of an additional exposure. There are photos and videos of the Coax helicopter over on the episode show notes at rotarywingshow.com. And you can use the recording widget there on the right-hand side of the website to leave a message that we can actually then play back in a future episode. So tell us a bit about you know what you're doing, what you enjoy about the show, and, and sort of what things you're flying and what the job is, and uh, we can stitch that into a, an episode coming up. So don't forget to leave a, a comment as well under the episodes. I respond to everyone there that I can, and I get always get the show guests back in if, it's, if the answer for your question is beyond me. Thanks for joining us again, folks. I've been your host, Mick Cullen, and that is the Rotary Wing Show for another week. <laughs>